The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have given us your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, that it illuminates uh, the reality of your creation, that we might understand truth as it is and not as man perceives it on the basis of limited rationalism or empiricism or experience. Father, we pray that you would now, as we submit ourselves to your word, help us to understand these things, that we might apply them to... Uh, current situations into our lives, and that our thinking might be transformed by the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and we will conclude our study of this first cycle of deliverance this morning. The judge is Othniel. Now, by way of review, what we have in Judges 3, 5, and 3, 6 is a statement of the basic problem that occurs again and again in Israel. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and Here's the real core issue. They served their gods. The concept of serving their gods is a, con- is a spiritual issue and explains to us that the underlying problem, despite whatever political problems, military problems, economic problems they had, the underlying problem is a spiritual problem. Everything else is a symptom of that problem. And this is something that... that is going to pervade this entire period. Much of what we see in this first episode will be true throughout the entire period of the judges. It is a time when 
as the writer of Judges says, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the point is that everybody looked to themselves as the ultimate authority rather than God. There's a rejection of God. And so when the writer, to the, to, uh, uh, writer, the Jewish writer, writes this, he is using sort of a double entendre there that, that not only was there no physical king in the land at that time, he writes about the time that Saul is made the first king, but he is making a point that Israel has rejected God as the absolute authority in their life because God was established by the Mosaic Law as the king. It was a theocracy. And as under that theocracy, Israel had the greatest level of freedom for the citizens of the nation. They had the greatest level of freedom in the ancient world and perhaps at any time in world history up to the early stages of the American Republic. And that was because they understood the principle that freedom begins in the soul and it is not merely a matter of, of political freedom. And as long as they were in right relationship with God, then they experienced the benefits of the political freedom guaranteed by the Mosaic Law. But as soon as they rejected God, then they entered into a period of enslavement. And enslavement always begins in the soul and what happens on the outside, whether it is a political form of slavery, such as you have under communism in the Soviet countries, and, and one thing that I've observed in my travels over there is how uh, truly enslaved the people were to the government, and or whether it's some form of racial slavery or military slavery, whatever it might be, slavery begins in the soul, and a people or culture loses its ability to uh, enjoy freedom because it first loses its uh, capacity for freedom in the soul. Capacity for freedom can only come from Bible doctrine. And so the writer of the book of Judges is making an, a political argument for why the nation is losing its freedom under the monarchy. There's a warning in 1 Samuel 8 when the people finally reject God, call upon Samuel to give them a king like all the other nations, and the point there is that, that, that they are warned about is that when they get a king, this king is going to uh, develop a bureaucracy. He's going to have all of his uh, nobles. He's going to increase the taxation upon the people. And to the degree that taxation is, is increased, personal freedoms are lost. What happens is that you begin to work five, six, seven, eight months a year in order to fuel the coffers of the state. And that is nothing more than enslavement. When a, when a citizen works between five, depending on their income and depending on who they are, between five and eight months out of every calendar year, 100% of what you make during that time goes to taxes, either as income taxes or fees or some other form. That means that, that you are basically a slave for five or six, seven months out of any given year to the government. That is not freedom, that is slavery. And because people in this nation don't understand it, they, they can't comprehend the fact that uh, why it is necessary for uh, political leaders to start rolling back taxes. T the degree of taxation is always a barometer of the lack of freedom in a nation and failure to understand basic economic principles. So there is a warning to that effect in 1 Samuel 8, and starting from that point on under the monarchy, the nation Israel begins to experience less and less personal freedom because they 
give up personal freedom or security. They want to be like everybody else. They want a health care plan like the Canadians or a health care plan like the Brits. Or they want to have uh, uh, social programs like the Australians. Or they want to get rid of guns and have gun control so they give up personal protection like the Australians and the Canadians have done. And incidentally, what's happened in Australia and in Canada in the last uh, couple of years since they have gone to... uh, Uh, Well, in Australia, they outlawed personal ownership of firearms completely, and the result is that now homicides have increased, uh, sexual assaults have increased, armed robberies have increased, because the criminals get the gun. You see, all the only thing that happens when you start passing a lot of legislation related to arms control is that that affects only the law-abiding citizen. The uh, criminal doesn't care about law to begin with, So the criminal doesn't pay any attention to it. He's always going to get firearms, and he's always going to uh, be able to uh, arm himself. And then when the citizenry does not have the ability to arm themselves, then they are weak and helpless, and they are the victim then of crime or the tyranny of government. And this is another thing that we should observe as sort of a side note to this entire period of the judges is that it's revealed in 1 Samuel chapter 9 excuse me, chapter 19, no, 1 Samuel 9, that um, there is, this is a period when the, the Philistines and some of the other nations surrounding Israel have gained Iron Age technology. So they are making swords and shields and spears out of iron, but because of their military dominance of Israel during the time of the judges, they are keeping Israel from... Uh, utilizing Iron Age technology, and they do that by rounding up all of the blacksmiths and uh, keeping them from being able to practice uh, their, their skill and to provide any kind of iron for the nation. In other words, it's an early form of arms control. And the biblical principle that is revealed in this is that whenever a government or a nation or the citizenry of a nation is prevented from utilizing the latest technology, whatever it is, whether it's, use, whether it's personal ownership of Uzi submachine guns or whatever it might be, if you are limited in your access to the latest technology to protect yourself, then the government or the criminal element will have access to that latest technology and you will be, you will be as a private citizen, overwhelmed by them and thus be, can become a victim to whoever can outgun you or or outmaneuver you in terms of the latest technology. So with with, uh, recognition of all the problems that are going on in our country today uh, because of children getting arms and all this, they're violating laws. You don't need any more laws in order to stop this. What you need is implementation of what's already on the books, and, and some of the things that are on the books actually need to be removed because they do infringe upon... Uh, personal rights of ownership, and they're really there. What you see, what you see, if you follow the the historical situation today, what you see in Australia and Canada, is that the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of the gun control crowd, is the elimination of personal ownership of firearms. Now they may not admit that, but this you can see this in other similar types of movements. For example, if you take notice of the anti-smoking movement. Back in the uh, back about 15 years ago as well, we just want to have uh, smoking areas in restaurants, smoking and non-smoking areas, so that the 
the uh, non-smokers not going to be exposed to uh, the, the, you know, the foul smell from the smokers. But they didn't stop there. You see, their long-term agenda is really the elimination of, of, of smoking. Now, smoking is bad for your health, and I recognize that, but that's not a federal issue. That's a personal issue. If people want to be stupid and do things that engage in harmful behavior, that's their responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the government to come in and dictate personal behavior. And that's exactly what happens when you get self-righteousness in control and arrogance in government. You see it with the seatbelt law. And I've said this for 15 years, and people just don't seem to understand that the issue is not whether or not you're pro seatbelt wearing or not. Everybody should wear a seatbelt. That, that just goes without saying. It, it's safety. But it's not the federal government to dictate safety. I mean, the, the, the really the, the inequity here is that um, at the same time that the federal government has dic- dictated and really blackmailed all of the states into passing seatbelt laws, saying that if you don't do it, we'll withhold uh, federal highway funds. That's nothing more than federal blackmail. Of course, you see, you lost the right for states to have independence in non-constitutionally delegated areas as, as a result of... Uh, the war between the states. See, that the issue there was states' rights. It wasn't slavery. Slavery was just the flash pan that started the whole thing. The issue was whether or not the states had the right to legislate or not legislate in independent areas that were guaranteed by the Constitution that were not delegated to the federal government. And so once you lost that at the Civil War, you instituted a federal form of government that was contrary to the Constitution so that states could no longer act independently, and they were subject now to blackmail by the federal government. But you see, it. In, in, the point I'm making in the anti-smoking thing is that now you have places like up in Cambridge, Mass., which is what the, the local uh, socialist communist enclave in New England, is that smoking has been completely outlawed. See, that was the agenda. You can't smoke in Cambridge without getting arrested. See, that's the point of the... That's their agenda. And the same thing is true in the anti-gun crowd. Their agenda is the elimination of personal ownership of firearms. It's not just control. It is the elimination. So we have to be aware that there are a lot of agendas behind these uh, movements that on, on the surface they make them politically palatable and politically correct and they don't ever want to come right out and talk about the fact that they're out to destroy freedom and control the citizenry. But that's exactly what happens. And it's a form of enslavement. Now, a culture becomes susceptible to this kind of enslavement once their soul is enslaved. And this is what happens throughout the period of the judges, once they reject God. Now, we're going to see a continuous cycle take place. First, there is disobedience. The people reject God and they turn to the Baalim and the Asherim in order to solve the problems in life. So there's disobedience toward God and rejection of God. This is followed by divine discipline according to the five cycles of discipline outlined in the Mosaic Law. And then this leads to the nation crying out for deliverance and God providing a deliverer in the form of a judge. And that usually lasted for about a generation. And then it was back to the same cycle of disobedience again, discipline and deliverance. And they go through this cycle eight times during this period of the judges. The first is Othniel, who will be followed by Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and finally Samson. And by the time we get to Samson, 
we'll see that Israel doesn't look or operate any differently from the pagan Canaanite culture around them. Othniel is presented as sort of the benchmark by which all the other periods are judged and all the other judges are evaluated. Nothing negative is said of Othniel. He is a hero. He's a military hero from back in Judges 1 who conquered Devere and uh, took uh, Caleb's daughter as his wife because of his military prowess, because he was willing to trust God for the victory when no one else would. And Othniel is always presented in a very positive light, and then from that point on there is something some sort of flaw in each subsequent judge because they are compromising with paganism because they have now assimilated values from the pagan culture around them. Now, the image that we have here is that Israel represents, if you take a rough view of the land, Israel represents the life of the believer in the church age. So that as the army of God, an army of Israel under the angel of the Lord, entered into the land, it is, it is analogous to the believer's salvation. He has new life. He has possession of something new. Now, what happens initially is major enclaves of human viewpoint are wiped out. This is what happened when they took out uh, Jericho and then Ai and then swung into the south and wiped out a confederacy of Canaanite kings in the south and then moved into the north and did the same thing there. That's typical of what happens in most believers' life. They get saved and then for a period of time they begin to deal with major obvious problems in their life and they apply doctrine there and then once they get those major areas under control, then they get go into a period of complacency. Complacency then leads to compromise. And compromise then leads to the uh, assimilation of the values of the sin nature so that all of the um, paganite and pagan and Canaanite cultures within Israel then represent the presence of indwelling sin in the believer's life and the constant battle with the enemy within our sin nature. But it's interesting that aside from the Philistines, who just have a small strip of land along the Mediterranean where the five lords of the Philistines operate, that all of the oppression, all of the control comes from outside, from the, like Cushan Rishathayim, a king of Mesopotamia, from the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites. All of these are external peoples who come in and attack. Now, the outside represents the world system for the believer's life, by analogy. And what we can learn from this entire period of the judges is how we, as individual believers, lose ground in spiritual warfare to the pagan concepts around us. Because once we begin to compromise with the sin nature within, then the sin nature provides rationales and justifications for the thinking of the world system. And once we cave into to assimilation with the internal sin nature, then that works in conjunction with the value system of the world system on the outside and before long, because we, we are enslaved internally first, we then become slaves on the outside to cosmic thinking. That's the overall structure 
And throughout this, we'll see what the divine solution is to the spiritual problem. Verse 7 gives us a clue as to the, the problem here. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God. Now, I've pointed out in the last several lessons that what happens here is more than just a temporary amnesia or that they woke up that morning and just uh, overlooked the fact that God had a vital role in their life, but that they are actively, volitionally rejecting Him in favor of the false gods of the Canaanites, the Baalim and the Asherah. Now, I want you to notice something I didn't point out last time. But as I reflected on this over the last couple of weeks, it seems like there's a a pun, a little bit of a pun or paranomasia going on in this passage where the writer is using the same word with different senses and it explains for us a, a, a point he wants us to observe. First of all, in rejecting God, they don't get into some kind of freedom they go immediately into a, a subservient relationship to idolatry. See, there's no such thing as independence or autonomy from God. You're either serving God or you're serving the world system and you're serving Satan, one or the other. It's not, there's no neutrality. There's no point of, of uh, independence from God or religion. Once you, once you remove God then something moves into that vacuum that becomes a taskmaster and enslaves us. And that is the sin nature, and there is always some sort of religious subservience. Even if it's atheism, that is a religion. It is a religious view that there is no God, and so you become enslaved to that position. So that's what's going on here. The word serve is the word abad, which means to work, to serve, to worship in some context, and in other contexts to be enslaved. But the writer uses the same word with different senses here. Here it obviously has the sense of, of religious worship or service, but it's going to but once you enslave yourself to any kind of false ideology or religious system, then that leads because you have enslaved your soul, it leads to an external slavery. And that's what you see in verse eight. Then the anger of Yahweh the emphasis there is on the covenant God, God who revealed His name as Yahweh to Moses before He gave the covenant to Israel, that this, is, this emphasizes the fact that Israel has violated the, the Mosaic law. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. Literally, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. The literal phrase is the nose of the Lord burned, but it's just an idiom for the fact that expressing the anthropopathic idea that God... God's righteousness has been violated, so in justice he is disciplining Israel, so that he sold them. He sold them, and this is the Hebrew word, makar, which is used frequently to dis- in, in uh, the Mosaic Law to describe the function of selling someone into slavery. Selling someone into slavery. So this is the... Uh, Verb makar, and you move from avad up here, a b a d. Now you use this word makar, m a k a r, 
And that emphasizes this idea of slavery. And then that in turn leads to the fact that God sells them as slaves into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia, and the sons, the sons of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim eight years. So we move from serving gods up here, the enslavement of the soul spiritually, to physical enslavement where now they are back to serving God. I mean, they are serving Cushan, Rishathaim. They are in political and economic and military slavery because they have been overrun by the uh, military might of this king of Mesopotamia. Now that brings us to uh, an interesting point. One of the uh, first problems that occurs here in uh, trying to understand this particular passage. And that is the identification of this king, Cushan Rishathaim. Now his name, Cushan, when you had to do a lot of research on trying to figure some of this out, Cushan looks at first glance as if it is a derivative of Cush. Cush is one of the uh, descendants of Noah and, uh, and the uh, father of some of the black races down in Africa. So there is an early concept that the, this is uh, an African, but that's not, that doesn't fit the um, uh, way that, that various things are used in the text. First of all, we have to do a little work on the word etymologically, and this we realize that this is not the king's real name. This is a title. He is a he is Kushan. That indicates his his uh, ethnic origin, and we'll get back to understanding what that means in just a minute. But the word Rishathaim is the Hebrew word for wickedness and evil. Now it has a an ending on it. When you see a word ayim in the Hebrew, the Hebrew is different. In English, you have a singular and you have a plural. So, any two or more is a plural. But in Hebrew, you have a dual ending, which indicates two. So, Egypt, which had two kingdoms, upper kingdom and lower kingdom, was called Mitzrayim, ayim, two kingdoms. Rishathaim is evil. It's too evil or double evil. This is uh, Kushan of the double evil. We don't know what he had done or what gave rise to that description of him, but this is uh, something that characterized him. He is the Kushite who is doubly wicked or the Kushite who performed the double evil. Uh, just exactly what that was, we don't know. Now we have a hint as to what um, Kushan meant because it's used in uh, Habakkuk 3.7 where we read, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. So right there we see that, that Kushan and land of Midian are parallel to each other in synonymous parallelism in that passage. So this would indicate that Cushan was a Midianite. Cushan was a Midianite. 
Now, before we get any further into looking at that, I want to back up and do a little analysis. This is a good time to do this in a political election year like this, is to understand a system for evaluating uh, anything politically. Because what we see here is why we have to answer the question, why is it that God is so strict in His discipline of the nation? And to do this, we have to understand that they have not only violated the Mosaic Law, but more basic than that, they have violated the basic uh, divine institutions that God has established for the uh, security of the human race and for its protection. And this began in the Garden of Eden before man ever, ever sinned with three divine institutions. The first is human responsibility, uh, developed first in Genesis 2.17, where God warned that the instant they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they would die. And when they did, they died spiritually. And what happened? First thing that you see, and I think this always goes along with sin, is the sort of the basic orientation of the sin nature, is that when uh, God came to confront them with their sin, they immediately blamed the other person. You know, the woman said, "It wasn't me; it was the snake," and the man said, "It wasn't; it wasn't me; it was the woman you gave me." You know, I don't know whether he said it was the woman you gave me or it was the woman you gave me. You know whether. He's trying to blame both the woman and God. So you see that one of the failures is that in a breakdown of a civilization is when you see the breakdown of the first divine institution. In its place, you see the development of victimology, which is what we have today. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's either the society that I grew up in. It's that I was born in poverty or I was born in a home where my uh, mother was... um, a prostitute, and my father was an alcoholic, or, or my mother was a drug addict, or they just didn't care about me. They were, in, they were too concerned with their own jobs, their own careers to really pay any attention. Whatever it is, it's not my fault. It's something that my parents either actively did or didn't do, uh, and so it's not my fault. I'm the way I am. And we see this avoidance of responsibility. That's exactly what was happening in Israel. They weren't taking responsibility for their actions, and they were making bad choices from a position of weakness, so they were operating on negative volition and following after other gods. So this is a violation of divine institution number one, and that's why it is important that when you are looking at and evaluating any kind of political candidate or any kind of political decision that uh, or piece of legislation that you have to think in terms of how does this relate to the first divine institution in terms of promoting personal responsibility. You see, this is one of the problems that goes back even to uh, before World War II with the entire Social Security Act. See, you get into a situation today, I was watching the debates this last week, we got into a situation today where we have assumed the validity of certain things that, uh, that we no longer uh, even challenge. And so in this last debate, you got into a situation where uh, uh, one of the candidates was challenging the other one on the basis of, of uh, uh, his record in Texas on the, uh, on children's, the insurance the, of, the, uh, of the uninsured, uninsured children, uninsured women, and that they were 49th or 50th of all, of all the states. And the correct answer that George W. should have come out with is, now wait a minute. Let's challenge the whole assumption that it's the state's responsibility to make sure people are insured. You see, we are accepting a false proposition there. 
It is not the government's responsibility to make sure anybody has insurance. That avoids personal responsibility. That's a violation of divine institution number one. And yet that's not even on the table anymore as a matter of debate. So you have to challenge the underlying assumption that's there, and that's where the problem is. It is man's responsibility to take care of their individual health care, whatever it is, and if they don't do it or can't work for it or can't take the job, it is not the government's responsibility and it's not uh, the, the nation's responsibility. So right there you see a problem with the breakdown and misunderstanding of personal responsibility. It goes back to the whole development of the Social Security Administration, that somehow it's the government's responsibility to provide that safety net. But to the degree that there is a, any safety net in a society that, uh, that provides security, to that degree there is a, a limitation of freedom to succeed. You limit somebody's failure, you also limit their degree of success. Now the second divine institution is marriage. This is established in Genesis 2.18, and there are roles within marriage. So as soon as you get into a situation where you establish a, a violation of marriage and you're going to try to recognize uh, civil unions or even put that on the table, then you are beginning to attack the very foundation of society in terms of marriage. So there is no basis biblically for any kind of union between members of the same sex. It is always between one man and one woman, and that is, a, uh, is established before God. You don't come along and, and break it down by uh, putting a marriage penalty where the, the, the uh, tax liability of a married couple is greater than the tax liability of the two individuals. That is a very subtle attack on marriage. And so any legislator who votes for, uh, who supported a marriage tax and, and won't get rid of it, ought to be fired, ought to be run out of office. And anybody who doesn't understand that doesn't understand the first thing about the Bible, doesn't understand anything about the biblical principle of government. I mean, it just amazes me. You know, Christians just spend all their time learning about spiritual life or learning about uh, salvation and never get into the real profound issues of Scripture which talk about the basic structures of any society. And then the next is family. Emphasis on family and the responsibility of family. And in the family, there's an hierarchy. And the father is in charge of the spiritual instruction of the family. And the wife is designed to help him in that. And that's her role as a helper to the husband. And that whenever you get into a society... See, one of the reasons things has caused a lot of breakdown in our society is as a result of bad economic policy in the late 70s. Most people don't realize this, but the late 70s is... a put a tremendous pressure, financial pressure, on the American family that really caused the entire social structure of uh, the family in America to shift. Back in 19, about 1911, it took a family of four. If a family of four, were, and most families lived on the farm at that time, so all, you had a family of four, husband, wife, two kids, working on the farm, could work about, all of them working about 40 hours a week, could achieve a certain level of uh, uh, financial independence and support. In 1970, in 1970, some of you remember this, others of you who weren't born until then, this is ancient history to you, but you need to pay attention to it. In 1970, when I was in college taking sociology, one of the big concerns was because of 
coming, they could see what was going to happen with computers and, and uh, technology, that there was just going to be an excess of um, disposable time and vacation time because we're probably going to have a 30-hour work week by 1990. And what were people going to be doing with all that extra time? See, that was what was envisioned then because in 1970, it took one man working 40 hours a week. Some of you remember this. I, I remember this with my folks. My dad worked 40 hours a week. He never left the house any earlier than 7.30, took the bus downtown. He was always home by uh, 5 o'clock, and he never worked overtime, never had to deal with any of that. My mother never worked. And statistics show that in 1970, that one man working 40 hours a week supported a family of four at the same level of income it took four to produce in 1911. In 1985, to produce that same lifestyle, to produce that same level of income by 1985 because of the runaway double-digit inflation due to uh, the policies, the economic policies of the late 70s, and some of you remember all that double-digit inflation and mortgage rates were up around 14 or 15%, 17%. I mean, it was a horrible time. I was in seminary at the time, and it was just at high gas prices, high inflation. And uh, by 1985, as a result of all of that, it took a husband and a wife, both working a minimum of 60 hours a week, to produce the same lifestyle and level of income that one man produced in 1970 with only 40 hours a week. That's why in the 70s, in, in many doctrinal churches, they were having Bible classes five, six times a week, and it didn't put that much pressure on a family. Because Dad was home by 5 o'clock, dinner's on the table at 6 o'clock because the wife's not working, and then they can get off to church and be there at 8 o'clock, and there's not that much pressure. But by the late 80s, they're both working 60, 70 hours a week. And I saw a report on the news this last week that in many, many cases today, people are working a minimum of 100 hours a week. And many corporations are putting that kind of pressure on people because they don't want to hire another worker because then they have to pay benefits and health care and it's much more expensive. So they would rather have an employee work 100 hours a week. And you know what? Companies that do that are violating these divine institutions and they ought to be canned. I mean, we have to evaluate society, everything in society, through the grid of the divine institutions. And, and some of these corporations are, are doing that. And those are anti-marriage and anti-family business practices that are eating away at the very core fabric of American society. And when government comes along and, and uh, substantiates that, furthermore, I think a family of four only paid about 8% income tax back in 1956, and they carry the bulk of income tax in excess of 20-25% today. So back in the 50s and 60s where they under, they, there was a much more pro-marriage and pro-family uh, attitude from uh, national government, they lightened the tax burden on families instead of increasing the tax burden on families. So you see that over the last 40 to 50 years, the uh, federal government has increasingly instituted policies that are anti-marriage, anti-family, and violate the whole principle of personal responsibility. And the more you go in that direction, the more enslaved people become. And that's exactly what's happened tax-wise over the last 50 years. And then the fourth divine institution is human government, which is established in the Noahic Covenant 
Genesis 9-6, which institutes the principle of, of uh, capital punishment. And there's a big debate today. Obviously, there are those who, there's an inequity there. There are many uh, on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, many blacks who are uh, on death row, and there seems to be an inequity there, and there may well be. And there ought to be an evaluation of that to make sure that the principles are, are applied correctly. But just because the government doesn't operate consistently or just because there are inequities in its application doesn't mean you stop the application. It just means you make things more equitable. You just solve the problem and you make sure that, that uh, that's not, those factors aren't the, aren't the factors for, for determining capital punishment. Every criminal guilty, I think every criminal guilty of any kind of violent crime with a handgun any kind of sexual assault or murder should be executed within at least 12 months. Failure to do so just shows you don't understand the concept and you have more concern for the, for the criminal than you do for the victim. And so in, in uh, uh, the Noahic Covenant and in the Mosaic Law, there is a protection of the victim and not the criminal. And then in Genesis 11:7 through 9, there is the establishment of national distinctions rather than internationalism and globalism. There's not the breakdown of uh, national identity. So once a government starts breaking these down, that's what happened in Israel. Their, their marriage and family is under attack because they're engaged in the fertility religions and fertility rites of, the, uh, of, of Baal worship. Uh, human government's breaking, breaking down because they have violated and rejected the, their own king, who is God, and instead of obeying the Mosaic Law, they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. They're breaking down national distinctions because they're intermarrying with the Canaanites who they were supposed to annihilate and uh, completely remove from the land. So now all their, their, their national identity and this distinctiveness of Israel is being uh, diluted by intermarriage with the pagans. So by violating all of these divine institutions, they have set themselves up for slavery. So we get back to the identification of Kushan Rishathaim, and we see that he comes from an area down here. If you look at the map on the overhead, Midian is south of the Salt Sea. This is the Dead Sea in this area here, and just off the map to the south, and, and further south than there is, is Midian down in Arab, the area of uh, Arabia, and coming up to this border was the area of the Midianites. This is where Moses had gone during his 40 years in the desert. He had taken a, a wife from the Midianites. Uh, Jethro was one of the Midianite leaders. And we see that they are just another um, particular Arab tribe. In Genesis 25.2, we see that they are a descendant of the fourth son of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah. We need to see that this is all very relevant to today because just as there is an era against Israel today made up of many different factions and different ethnic groups, the same was true in, in Judges. I mean, if you understand what's going on then, uh, we have a big clue as to what's going on now. Yeah, the genea so we'll just look at briefly at the genealogy of the Arabs. After, after the fall, I mean, after the flood, Noah had his son Shem, who had a son Arphaxad, down to the fifth generation of Peleg. Noah, then Shem, then Arphaxad, Eber, 
who some think that name is etymologically related to Hebrew, but it's not. Eber, Peleg. And then Peleg has a son, Yoktan. And Yoktan is the father of 13 Arab tribes, according to Genesis chapter 10. So that's the source of one branch of the Arabs. This is, uh, many of these Arab tribes are down in the area of Saudi Arabia today. And then Peleg's son is Nahor, who is the father of the Chaldeans, and he, ha- and, the- and he has a son, Terah. Terah has three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. These three sons then are uh, all born in Ur of the Chaldees, and so they are basically Chaldean. Abraham, though, becomes the first Jew when he is circumcised, and he then becomes the father of the Jewish race. But before he can have the child of the promise, who is Isaac, he um, follows his wife's advice, and he takes Hagar, her Egyptian uh, slave, as his uh, concubine, and has a son, Ishmael. Ishmael is the uh, progenitor of the Bedouin Arabs. So now we have two Arab groups, the descendants of Joktan or Yoktan, and the descendants of Ishmael. Isaac's true, I mean, Abraham's true son is Isaac, and then he marries Keturah and has six sons with Keturah, one of whom is Midian and is the progenitor of the Midianites, another Arab group. Now, Nahor, Abraham's brother, has a son named Lot. And Lot is well known because he, when Abraham gave him the opportunity to choose whatever land he wanted, he liked the, uh, the five cities of the plain, and he wanted to go down and, and enjoy himself there. And uh, after God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in the, in the valley there, then he left, and one night he got drunk, and, got, and his two daughters got drunk, and they, uh, while he's racked out, they got in bed with him, committed incest, and had two sons, Ammon and Moab. And these are the progenitors of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And in Jordan today, that's where they, the Ammonites and Moabites in the ancient world uh, operated in the general area of Jordan today, and that is why the capital of Jordan is named Ammon. It is etymologically related to Ammon. And King Hussein, who recently died, had his genealogy allegedly traced back to the Moabites. So these are present-day Arabs operating in Jordan who are clearly a part of the Arab alliance against the Jews. And then Isaac had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau, And Esau is the father of the Edomites, but also through one of his grandchildren, Amalek, who is the father of the Amalekites, who are one of the major tribes continuously allied against Israel. They seem to be a major force against Israel at this time. And then there's a Gentile group, the Philistines, the Pelesites. That's what they're called in Hebrew. And that is the etymological root of Palestine. It is, was never the land of the Philistines. The Philistines only operated on a small corridor along the uh, Mediterranean, roughly equivalent to the Gaza Strip. And they, were never, they never owned all of the land. And so many of the modern-day uh, Palestinians, so-called Palestinians, are just a group of Arab nomads who moved into 
the land of Israel after the Jews were removed in 70 A.D. and they did nothing with the land for 1,800 years. And then the Jews gradually started going back under a new Zionist movement that gained speed in the late 19th century and went back to Israel and began buying land. They didn't go in and take it militarily. They bought land and they began to irrigate the land and they began to transform the land so that today, once again, in in many areas of Israel, there is tremendous productivity and it is no longer the barren wasteland it was for 1,800 years. But that was because the Jews transformed it, and once they transformed it, then all of the the, uh, uh, Bedouins and the Arabs who hadn't done anything with it for 1,800 years got jealous and decided they really wanted it. Now, that's the background for what's going on today and all the fighting. The the Palestinians have no correct title to the land at all. They... they, uh, uh, if they ever did, they sold it to the Jews, and the, then the Jews organized it in the uh, 19th century and then established an independent Jewish state. And at some time we'll go into a detailed study of all of that. But for right now, I just want to establish this chart to understand who, all, who these Arab groups are. Because throughout the, our study of Judges, we're going to see that it is the, the Arabs, it's the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, who are in some way or another allied against Israel. So as there's this continuous pressure against Israel to destroy their autonomy and to remove them from the land. So the Midianites, therefore, are a a tribe descended from from the uh, fourth son of Abraham and Keturah, Genesis 25:2. They are descendants of Midian. They inhabited the north northern part of the peninsula of Arabia all the way up to approximately the Dead Sea, and that was where they pastured their flocks. They were a nomadic people, and they came to uh, uh, really just to be assimilated into other Arab tribes after they were eventually defeated. In the uh, 16th century B.C., or excuse me, in the 19th century B.C., we know that they were uh, uh, responsible for uh, buying Joseph as a slave and selling him into Egypt, according to Genesis 37, 28 to 36. So much like their modern Arab counterparts, they were engaged in the slave trade in the ancient world. Now, the most significant notice of the Midianites in the Old Testament has to do with Moses when he left Egypt and he went to Midian where he became the son-in-law of Rechuel or Jethro, the priest of Midian. And following the Exodus, the Midianites were friendly to the Israelites as long as the Jews stayed out of Midian. And so the Jews, as they were coming up from the... uh, from Sinai on their way to the land, they, they tried to pass around uh, Midian through the, around the southern end of Edom. And in doing so, they uh, crossed the boundary lines into Midian. And so the Midianites allied themselves with the Moabites and sought to attack them. This is the whole episode of Balaam and his talking ass trying to, uh, uh, and his attempt to curse Israel. As a result, there was a uh, 24,000 Jews were killed in a major battle, but the um, Midianite Moabite Confederation was destroyed, and 
that's about the, uh, and then eventually by the time of, of Gideon, they are destroyed completely from history. By the time we get to the end of the Gideon episode, we will see the end of the Midianites. So whoever was left from them was just assimilated into Moab and Edom. Now, the, the, that's the first problem, is identifying Cushan. So Cushan seems to be related, he, he seems to be a Midianite who has found his way up into um, Mesopotamia. So we have a map here in the overhead from the time of the Persian Empire, just to give you an idea of where this is located. He's from up in the region of uh, Aram of the Two Rivers, which is located up here, Mesopotamia, up in this area. And so he puts, has a military move to the southwest, down through Syria, modern Syria, and down into the northern part of, of uh, Israel. Now, that gives you just a, a large view there. Then we'll go to a modern map, and we can see that it is in this same area, what we would call uh, the area of Syria today, northeast Syria, and uh, northwest Iraq is the same area where Kushan Rishathaim had his, had his kingdom. And so he would invade down through modern Syria and Lebanon into the northern part of Israel. Now, the interesting thing about this is it raises the second problem. And the second problem is that, that Othniel is associated with the tribe of Judah down in the south. So he's down roughly in this area. Why is it that God is using a judge in the south to come up and deal with a military problem in the north? And this has raised some... Uh, some debate over the years, and I think that if we look at a few things, we will we can understand what's going on in the text at the time, or what was going on historically at the time, and why God chose to use uh, Othniel as opposed to anyone else. Now, we need to look at a few things going on in Israel at the time. For example, in we see this association of Arabs. Judges 3.13 in our next episode with Ehud, we'll see that... Um, that there is an, another alliance that takes place between Eglon, the king of Moab. And in verse 13 it says, And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and the sons of Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. So there we see another alliance with, um, with these Arab tribes in the south. And then you look at Judges 5.14 on the overhead. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek. Now, Ephraim is in, at this point is central uh, Israel. Amalek came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down from Zebulun. The only thing I want you to note is there is this uh, association with Amalek. And then in verse 12 of chapter 7, now the Midianites, they appear one more, uh, appear again and the Amalekites, and all the sons of the east. So there seems to be this continuous alliance that is motivated by the Amalekites. And they aren't defeated until 1 Samuel chapter 14, where we read, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, the sons of Eden, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment 
And he acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. So that's a summary. And here you see that there, just like today, Israel is surrounded on all sides by her enemies and they are constantly seeking to remove her from the land. But when we want to identify this guy Cushan Rishathaim, we need to see that he is just another part of this overall uh, Arab alliance against Israel in the ancient world. This is uh, brought up again in Psalm 83.6, where there's a reference to the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Just a list of the nations that surround Israel and that are attacking Israel. So what we see here is that by verse 9, the people cry out to the Lord. This is the Hebrew word sa'ak, which has the idea of uh, calling out in a time of distress. It may or may not include the idea of true, gen- true confession. In Judges 10.10, it says, They cried out to the Lord, uses this word, and they admitted that they had forsaken God and turned to idolatry. But that's not here. And in many passages where the word sa'ak is used, there's no indication of prayer. There's no indication of confession. It is simply a fact that they have become overwhelmed by a foreign enemy and they're crying out, but there's no real uh, confession that takes place. There's no true repentance or change of mind. It's simply, Lord, I'm sorry I'm in trouble. It's not, uh, Lord, I recognize that I have violated your covenant and have sinned against you. And so they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord in His grace raises up a deliverer. Now, the word translated deliverer at this point is not the word shaftim for judges. It is the word from the root yasha, which means to save or to deliver. Yeshua, the name for Jesus, comes from this root word yasha, which means to save or deliver. And so this shows that salvation comes only from the Lord. It is an act of His grace. And it reminds me somewhat of of, of Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that in that while we were yet sinners, uh, God demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is not because we cried out that we needed salvation, but because God in His grace sent a deliverer. And so God's grace is always the impetus. It is always the grace of God that has been initiated from eternity past in providing salvation, and it is not dependent upon man's activities. So God raises up a deliverer. In this sense, He is a a type of Jesus Christ, that just as Othniel will deliver the Israelites, so Jesus Christ delivers us from the slavery of sin. And this He is identified as Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the interesting thing to note is who is Kenaz? Who exactly is Kenaz? And what we will discover from that is that he is listed back in uh, Judges, uh, back in, excuse me, back in Genesis 36, 9 through 12, in Amalek's genealogy. So a grandson of Esau was Kenaz, from whom came Caleb and Othniel. They were not native Jews. They had become, they were probably, uh, Caleb was probably a, uh, captured by the Jews, or one of his ancestors was, I'm captured by the Egyptians, and was enslaved in Egypt along with the Jews. And so uh, they had become part of Israel, just as uh, 
Ruth did later on, just as um, Rahab had earlier. And there were many others who came out of Egypt that were not Jewish, but that had become part of Israel and assimilated into the nation. So here you have God using someone who is ethnically related to Kushan Rishathaim, who is this part of this uh, overall uh, Arab conspiracy and Arab alliance against Egypt, in the same way that God uses believers who are transformed from sinner, from from the unsaved to the saved, and it uses them as a testimony in the angelic conflict. So he raises up Othniel. He is a ethnically, he is not a Jew. He is related to the Arabs who are against him, and he uses them, him, to bring about uh, the victory and the deliverance. And he does this through the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, this isn't the indwelling or filling of the Spirit. This is a unique ability by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to enable judges, priests, kings to fulfill their, their task. This is not part of the spiritual life. It is an endowment for military success. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Now, the point of this whole uh, episode is that it is only God and only a correct return to the Word of God that provides a people with the soul freedom, the capacity for freedom, to be able to enjoy freedom and be truly delivered from slavery. And as we draw out the analogy, we see that it's only uh, once you you are on positive volition, walking by means of the Spirit, that you can defeat the sin nature and have victory over the sin nature. Galatians chapter 5, 16. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So once the sin nature is defeated on the inside, there is confession and then the filling of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to do that. Then and only then can we apply the Word of God to attack the cosmic thinking that is defeating the believer in his everyday walk with the Lord. That's the analogy. It only comes through the Spirit of God and the Word of God and walking in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit and walking by means of the Spirit. So this is the point of the analogy and application for the believer's life. Now next time we'll come back and we'll look at how, uh, at the next episode, one of my favorites, and we'll see why, uh, how, how Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. That's next week. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for our time today to look at your word and to understand that true freedom comes only in right relationship with you. That, that any freedom that is not based on spiritual freedom is a shallow and superficial freedom because at its root there is an enslavement of the soul to false ideas, false philosophies, and false religions. Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word to reveal to us the true principles of freedom which began at the cross. That Jesus Christ died there to free us from the penalty of sin. He paid the price. He is our Redeemer, our Deliverer. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.